Section 65 of Young Folks Treasury, Volume 3, edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Uncle David's Nonsensical Story About Giants and Fairies by Catherine Sinclair. In the days of yore, children were not all such clever, good, sensible people as they are now. Lessons were then considered rather a plague. Sugar plums were still in demand. Holidays continued yet in fashion, and toys were not made then to teach mathematics, nor story-books to give instruction in chemistry and navigation. These were very strange times, and there existed at that period a very idle, greedy, naughty boy, such as we never hear of in the present day. His father and mother were no matter who, and he lived no matter where. His name was Master No-Book, and he seemed to think his eyes were made for nothing but to stare out of the windows and his mouth for no other purpose but to eat. This young gentleman hated lessons like mustard, both of which brought tears into his eyes, and during school hours he sat gazing at his books, pretending to be busy, while his mind wandered away to wish impatiently for dinner, and to consider where he could get the nicest pies, pastry, ices, and jellies, while he smacked his lips at the very thoughts of them. Whenever Master No-Book spoke, it was always to ask for something, and you might continually hear him say in a whining tone of voice, "'Father, may I take this piece of cake? Aunt Sarah, will you give me an apple? Mother, do send me the whole of that plum pudding.' Indeed, very frequently, when he did not get permission to gormandize, this naughty glutton helped himself without leave. Even his dreams were like his waking hours, for he had often a horrible nightmare about lessons, thinking he was smothered with Greek lexicons, or pelted out of the school with a shower of English grammars. While one night he fancied himself sitting down to devour an enormous plum-cake, and, all on a sudden, it became transformed into a Latin dictionary. One afternoon Master No-Book, having played truant all day from school, was lolling on his mother's best sofa in the drawing-room, with his leather boots tucked up on the satin cushions, and nothing to do but suck a few oranges, and nothing to think of but how much sugar to put on them, when suddenly an event took place which filled him with astonishment. A sound of soft music stole into the room, becoming louder and louder the longer he listened, till at length, in a few moments afterward, a large hole burst open in the wall of his room, and there stepped into his presence two magnificent fairies, just arrived from their castles in the air, to pay him a visit. They had travelled all the way on purpose to have some conversation with Master No-Book, and immediately introduced themselves in a very ceremonious manner. The fairy Do-Nothing was gorgeously dressed with a wreath of flaming gas round her head, a robe of gold tissue, a necklace of rubies, and a bouquet in her hand of glittering diamonds. Her cheeks were rouged to the very eyes, her teeth were set in gold, and her hair was of a most brilliant purple. In short, so fine and fashionable-looking a fairy never was seen in a drawing-room before. The fairy Teach-All, who followed next, was simply dressed in white muslin, with bunches of natural flowers in her light brown hair, and she carried in her hand a few neat small volumes, which Master No-Book looked at with a shudder of aversion. The two fairies now informed him that they very often invited large parties of children to spend some time at their palaces, but as they lived in quite an opposite direction, it was necessary for their young guests to choose which it would be best to visit first. 
Therefore they had now come to inquire of Master No-Book, whom he thought it would be most agreeable to accompany on the present occasion. "'In my house,' said the fairy teach-all, speaking with a very sweet smile and a soft, pleasing voice, "'you shall be taught to find pleasure in every sort of exertion, for I delight in activity and diligence. My young friends rise at seven every morning, and amuse themselves with working in a beautiful garden of flowers, rearing whatever fruit they wish to eat, visiting among the poor, associating pleasantly together, studying the arts and sciences, and learning to know the world in which they live, and to fulfil the purposes for which they have been brought into it. In short, all our amusements tend to some useful object, either for our own improvement or the good of others, and you will grow wiser, better, and happier every day you remain in the palace of knowledge. But in Castle Needless, where I live, interrupted the fairy do-nothing, rudely pushing her companion aside with an angry, contemptuous look, we never think of exerting ourselves for anything. You may put your head in your pocket and your hands on your sides as long as you choose to stay. No one is ever asked a question that he may be spared the trouble of answering. We lead the most fashionable life imaginable, for nobody speaks to anybody. Each of my visitors is quite an exclusive, and sits with his back to as many of the company as possible, in the most comfortable armchair that can be contrived. There, if you are only so good as to take the trouble of wishing for anything it is yours, without even turning an eye round to look where it comes from, dresses are provided of the most magnificent kind, which go on themselves, without your having the small annoyance, with either buttons or strings, games which you can play without an effort of thought, and dishes dressed by a French cook smoking hot under your nose from morning till night while any rain we have is either made of lemonade or lavender water and in winter it generally snows iced punch for an hour during the forenoon nobody need be told which fairy master no-book preferred and quite charmed at his own good fortune in receiving so agreeable an invitation he eagerly gave his hand to the splendid new acquaintance who promised him so much pleasure and ease and gladly proceeded in a carriage lined with velvet stuffed with downy pillows and drawn by milk-white swans to that magnificent residence castle needless which was lighted by a thousand windows during the day and a million of lamps every night here master no-book enjoyed a constant holiday and a constant feast while a beautiful lady covered with jewels was ready to tell him stories from morning till night and servants waited to pick up his playthings if they fell or to draw out his purse or his pocket-handkerchief when he wished to use them Thus Master No-Book lay dozing for hours and days on rich embroidered cushions, never stirring from his place, but admiring a view of trees covered with the richest burnt almonds, grottoes of sugar-candy, a jet d'eau of champagne, a wide sea which tasted of sugar instead of salt, and a bright clear pond filled with goldfish that let themselves be caught whenever he pleased. Nothing could be more complete, and yet, very strange to say, Master No-Book did not seem particularly happy. This appears exceedingly unreasonable when so much trouble was taken to please him, but the truth is that every day he became more fretful and peevish. No sweetmeats were worth the trouble of eating, nothing was pleasant to play at, and in the end he wished it were possible to sleep all day as well as all night. Not a hundred miles from the fairy do-nothing's palace there lived a most cruel monster called the giant Snap-em-up, who looked, when he stood up, like the tall steeple of a great church, raising his head so high that he could peep over the loftiest mountains, and was obliged to climb up a ladder to comb his own hair. Every morning, regularly, this prodigiously great giant walked round the world before breakfast for an appetite, 
after which he made tea in a large lake, used the sea as a slop basin, and boiled his kettle on Mount Vesuvius. He lived in great style, and his dinners were most magnificent, consisting very often of an elephant roasted whole, ostrich patties, a tiger smothered in onions, stewed lions, and whale soup. But for a side dish, his greatest favorite consisted of little boys, as fat as possible, fried in crumbs of bread with plenty of pepper and salt. No children were so well fed or in such good condition for eating as those in the fairy do-nothing's garden, who was a very particular friend of the giant Snap-em-ups, and who sometimes laughingly said she would give him a license and call her own garden his preserve, because she always allowed him to help himself whenever he pleased to as many of her visitors as he chose, without taking the trouble to even count them, and in return for such extreme civility the giant very frequently invited her to dinner. Snap-em-up's favorite sport was to see how many brace of little boys he could bag in a morning. So, in passing along the streets, he peeped into all the drawing-rooms without having occasion to get on tiptoe, and picked up every young gentleman who was idly looking out of the windows, and even a few occasionally who were playing truant from school. But busy children seemed always somehow quite out of his reach. One day, when Master No-Book felt even more lazy, more idle, and more miserable than ever, he lay beside a perfect mountain of toys and cakes, wondering what to wish for next, and hating the very sight of everything and everybody. At last he gave so loud a yawn of weariness and disgust that his jaw very nearly fell out of joint, and then he sighed so deeply that the giant Snap-em-up heard the sound as he passed along the road after breakfast, and instantly stepped into the garden with his glass at his eye, to see what was the matter. Immediately, on observing a large, fat, overgrown boy, as round as a dumpling, lying on a bed of roses, he gave a cry of delight, followed by a gigantic peal of laughter which was heard three miles off, and picking up Master Nobook between his finger and thumbs, with a pinch that very nearly broke his ribs, he carried him rapidly toward his own castle, while the fairy do-nothing laughingly shook her head as he passed, saying, that little man does me great credit he has only been fed for a week and is as fat already as a prize ox what a dainty morsel he will be when do you dine to-day in case i should have time to lick in upon you on reaching home the giant immediately hung up master no-book by the hair of his head on a prodigious hook in the larder having first taken some large lumps of nasty suet forcing them down his throat to make him become still fatter and then stirring the fire that he might be almost melted with heat to make his liver grow larger on a shelf quite near master no-book perceived the bodies of six other boys whom he remembered to have seen fattening in the fairy do-nothing's garden while he recollected how some of them had rejoiced at the thought of leading a long useless idle life with no one to please but themselves the enormous cook now seized hold of Master No-Book, brandishing her knife with an aspect of horrible determination, intending to kill him while he took the trouble of screaming and kicking in the most desperate manner, when the giant turned gravely round and said that as pigs were considered a much greater dainty when whipped to death than killed in any other way, he meant to see whether children might be improved by it also. Therefore she might leave that great hog of a boy till he had time to try the experiment especially as his own appetite would be improved by the exercise this was a dreadful prospect for the unhappy prisoner but meantime it prolonged his life a few hours as he was immediately hung up in the larder and left to himself 
There, in torture of mind and body, like a fish upon a hook, the wretched boy began at last to reflect seriously upon his former ways, and to consider what a happy home he might have had if he could only have been satisfied with business and pleasure succeeding each other like day and night while lessons might have come in as a pleasant sauce to his play-hours, and his play-hours as a sauce to his lessons. In the midst of many reflections, which were all very sensible, though rather too late, Master No-Book's attention became attracted by the sound of many voices, laughing, talking, and singing, which caused him to turn his eyes in a new direction, when, for the first time, he observed that the fairy Teach-All's garden lay upon a beautiful sloping bank not far off, there a crowd of merry noisy rosy-cheeked boys were busily employed and seemed happier than the day was long while poor master no-book watched them during his own miserable hours envying the enjoyment with which they raked the flower borders and gathered the fruit carried baskets of vegetables to the poor worked with carpenter's tools drew pictures shot with bows and arrows played at cricket and then sat in the sunny arbors learning their tasks or talking agreeably together till at length a dinner-bell having been rung, the whole party sat merrily down with hearty appetites and cheerful good-humour to an entertainment of plain roast meat and pudding, where the fairy Teach-All presided herself, and helped her guests moderately to as much as was good for each. Large tears rolled down the cheeks of Master No-Book while watching this scene, and remembering that if he had known what was best for him, he might have been as happy as the happiest of these excellent boys instead of suffering ennui and weariness as he had done at the fairy do-nothings ending in a miserable death but his attention was soon after most alarmingly roused by hearing the giant snap em up again in conversation with his cook who said that if he wished for a good large dish of scalloped children at dinner it would be necessary to catch a few more as those he had already provided would scarcely be a mouthful as the giant kept very fashionable hours, and always waited dinner for himself till nine o'clock, there was still plenty of time. So, with a loud grumble about the trouble, he seized a large basket in his hand, and set off at a rapid pace toward the fairy Teach-All's garden. It was very seldom that snap em up ventured to think of foraging in this direction, as he never once succeeded in carrying off a single captive from the enclosure. It was so well fortified, and so bravely defended, but on this occasion, being desperately hungry, he felt as bold as a lion, and walked, with outstretched hands, straight toward the fairy Teach-All's dinner-table, taking such prodigious strides that he seemed almost as if he would trample on himself. A cry of consternation arose the instant this tremendous giant appeared, and, as usual upon such occasions, when he had made the same attempt before, a dreadful battle took place. Fifty active little boys bravely flew upon the enemy, armed with their dinner-knives, and looked like a nest of hornets, stinging him in every direction, till he roared with pain, and would have run away, but the fairy Teach-All, seeing his intention, rushed forward with the carving-knife, and brandishing it high over her head, she most courageously stabbed him to the heart. If a great mountain had fallen to the earth, it would have seemed like nothing, in comparison with the giant snap em up who crushed two or three houses to powder beneath him, and upset several fine monuments that were to have made people remembered for ever. But all this would have seemed scarcely worth mentioning, had it not been for a still greater event which occurred on the occasion, no less than the death of the fairy Do-Nothing, who had been indolently looking on this great battle, without taking the trouble to interfere, or even to care who was victorious. 
but being also lazy about running away, when the giant fell, his sword came with so violent a stroke on her head that she instantly expired. Thus, luckily for the whole world, the fairy Teachall got possession of immense property, which she proceeded without delay to make the best use of in her power. In the first place, however, she lost no time in liberating Master Nobook from his hook in the larder, and gave him a lecture on activity, moderation, and good conduct which he never afterward forgot, and it was astonishing to see the change that took place immediately in his whole thoughts and actions. From this very hour Master Nobook became the most diligent, active, happy boy in the fairy Teachall's garden, and on returning home a month afterwards he astonished all the masters at school by his extraordinary reformation. The most difficult lessons were a pleasure to him. He scarcely ever stirred without a book in his hand, never lay on a sofa again, would scarcely even sit on a chair with a back to it, but preferred a three-legged stool, detested holidays, never thought any exertion a trouble, preferred climbing over the top of a hill to creeping round the bottom, always ate the plainest food in very small quantities, joined a temperance society, and never tasted a morsel till he had worked very hard and got an appetite. Not long after this an old uncle, who had formerly been ashamed of Master Nobook's indolence and gluttony, became so pleased at the wonderful change that on his death he left him a magnificent estate, desiring that he should take his name. Therefore, instead of being any longer one of the Nobook family, he is now called Sir Timothy Bluestocking, a pattern to the whole country around for the good he does to every one, and especially for his extraordinary activity, appearing as if he could do twenty things at once. Though generally very good-natured and agreeable, Sir Timothy is occasionally observed in a violent passion, laying about him with his walking-stick in the most terrific manner, and beating little boys within an inch of their lives. But on inquiry it invariably appears that he has found them out to be lazy, idle, or greedy, for all the industrious boys in the parish are sent to get employment from him, while he assures them that they are far happier breaking stones on the road than if they were sitting idly in a drawing-room with nothing to do. End of section 65